Hey guys and welcome to episode 16 on the health part with Omar. In this episode I have a chat with Joanna Blythman, an award-winning investigative journalist where we have a chat about processed food industry, the importance of Whole Foods, George Orwell and her experience of her visit to the West Bank in Palestine. Enjoy. Hey Joanna, can you hear me? Hello. Okay, one second. Oh, hi. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah, is that you, Omar? Yeah, it's me, Omar. How are you doing, Joanna? Okay, I'm very good. Let me just put my phone onto silence. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. How how's life treating you? Yeah, life is okay. There's challenges as a. Oh God! Uh, yes. There was always challenges. Started this journey like ten years ago. As I got into it, and I just thought, you know what? I love the subject so much into nutrition and well-being and everything. Um, let me study it even more. And for me, it's a bit like, hold on a second. This does not sound right or seems a bit fishy. Let me investigate and look into it. And then... Yes. And then... The f- Sorry? No, I'm just saying that's right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And I've I've got two girls now. And I want them, when they grow up, I want them to be more informed and more interested in this subject than me. And everyone's interested in their own things, but I want them to question things as well and just not take it as, you know, as information as it is. I think that's so important. I mean, in food, I mean, I think a lot of people have uh, actually start getting really interested in food when they have children because they feel like we've got this new little person, sort of new cells, new body, (laughs) new little health system. Let's try and get it off to a good start. And I think that often starts the you know the the questioning of of things that we've maybe before not not you know taken for granted but um in general critical thinking for everything is really almost becoming the biggest skill you need in modern life because so much of we're we're fed so many very set narratives um and it's almost like a substitute for thought and i think um, it's a it's a, a a very crucial skill to be able to take an argument or a a narrative or an explanation and actually hold it up and examine it and think about it and make your own decision about it. So I think you're doing absolutely the right thing. Thank you so much. And it's interesting you mentioned critical thinking because <clears throat> a, a podcast I did a couple of weeks ago that's going to be released in episode 15 it's with a guy who decided to homeschool his kids and he said there's two uh he said i'm pretty sure i know for sure he said two main things that you don't learn in school which is critical thinking and creativity yes i think that's right and i think it's got worse now because of the sort of intrusion of smartphones and uh computer sort of based learning Mm. i think that's actually sharpened that and it's really true i do i i could never have done it you know i'm just not i haven't got the patience and uh, i would have struggled with the maths i'll admit but at homeschooling i understand why some people make that decision I, i i can see it more and more of why you might think that way yeah definitely if you could introduce yourself to everyone to the listeners who don't know who you are and what what most of your followers and the world know you from yeah okay well um i'm a food writer i've always been a food writer for about three decades now i started off just being really interested in everything to do with food so obviously eating it cooking it restaurants how foods were, were produced and so on 
And um, then I kind of, I think about in the 1990s that I started thinking, you know, there's so much about modern food that is processed now and it doesn't really bear much similarity to what I recognise as food, yet we know so little about this. So increasingly, I think then, as well as maintaining my love and sheer sort of delight in the pleasure, the, the wonderful things of natural food, I uh, decided that I wanted to get to know what was going on behind the scenes of the food industry. So I've written a number of books. Um, the first book I wrote was The Food We Eat, and that was simply helping people distinguish or hopefully helping people distinguish between what's horrible chicken, what's not brilliant chicken, and what's good chicken. And through every category of food, helping people make good choices. Um, then I wrote a book which was um, called Shopped, The Shocking Power of British Supermarkets. And that was about how big food retailing has really taken over largely much of the sort of production base of the the, the the food production system in the in the UK and elsewhere and what a negative effect that's had on the quality of the the food we eat um I wrote a book called what our the food our children eat trying to help people find you know easier ways to you know, get their children to appreciate a good wide wholesome diet um I wrote another book called swallow this this is one of my most recent books. And it is, it was a major investigation of the ultra-processed food industry. So it was really going, drilling down to a level that no one had tackled uh, at all. And I interestingly see that no one has since. And I think the reason for that is there's so little... Um, uh, openness in the the modern ultra processed food industry. They really don't want you to know how what they're up to behind the scenes because, to be honest, you just wouldn't want to eat it if you did. So um, that's kind of my portfolio um, to date. Amazing, amazing. And uh, I would like to add. Uh, I know I mentioned this this to you when I spoke to you on the phone. Like, you are one of my heroes because in ten uh, ten years ago, when I in two thousand thirteen, when I was introduced to someone who's talking about natural health and talk about the way of living, and then I did it myself, and I saw a big difference in the way I was feeling. My hay fever went. I didn't have cold or flu at all for two whole years as I was following it. And I was like, okay, there must be some truth, like some truth to like you know a way of living and a way of eating. And then, um, and then I will set off my way into uh, going into researching and looking at who else is out there that you know that does looks into this kind of stuff. And one thing that pops to mind, I'll never forget it. To be honest, um, is an interview you did with Dr. McCullough, and it was on YouTube. It was interesting when you get into this kind of stuff, like not most of the time it's usually american based like everyone's researching mm -hmm. oh what's going on in america and i was like oh what's happening in the uk i can't find it and then there's a there's a blessing in yourself you came out you said you were investigating in all these places um so i wanted to ask like how does someone get into what you're doing well i guess the question is how do you start an investigation how what was your journey into getting into these factories and finding out what is actually going on behind the scenes it's really difficult because the the modern uh, ultra-processed food industry doesn't allow access 
uh, it does everything to stop you knowing what's going on. So one of the key things, one of the, uh, I mean, what you would normally do as a journalist, and I was an accredited food uh, journalist for writing for many papers, <clears throat> was you would approach the press office and you would say, okay, um, you know, I would like to learn more about how this supermarket chain makes its lasagna. You know, could you could you take me? You know, could I could I visit a factory? You get a lot of cagey questions back, like, excuse me, could you tell me more about your investigation or why you'd want to know that? And in no time at all, it would come back, no, I'm, I'm sorry, we're not able to do that. And it's because the excuse that's given is commercial confidentiality, that you might learn something which would be of advantage to that company's um, competitors. Uh, but in fact, it's nothing to do with that. It's just keeping you out because the less the public knows, uh, the better. So I, I tried knocking on the front door of a lot of um, and so on. And I realized that I wasn't going to get anywhere that way. Sorry, sorry Joanna, it, it caught out there. You said you you locked, uh, you knocked on a lot of doors and then it cut off. What were you saying? Yes. Sorry? Yeah. So I knocked on a lot of the front doors of supermarket chains and uh, food companies and tried to get access and obviously didn't succeed. Um, so I realized I was going to have to try another approach um, and I was going to have to go undercover. Um, so I did manage to get, I mean, I should, sorry, let me backtrack, Omar. I did yeah. manage to get into factories uh, for pe with people doing me a favor, essentially, providing it was on a sort of anonymous basis. Uh, so I was lucky and I, I did have a couple of industry insiders who would help. But other than that, it involved going undercover. So what I did in the end was I realized that if I approached uh, uh, one of the best ways to investigate the industry I wanted to investigate, which is called the food ingredients industry. I, these are the, the companies that supply the people, the, the companies that make ready meals, sandwiches, make all the processed food. So it's it's like their suppliers. So I realized that one of the best ways to get information was to go to their ingredient show. They have a, a big show yearly where all the uh, food ingredient suppliers uh, basically sell their wares to the processed food industry. I can imagine uh, it's not cheap either. No, it was it was expensive, but that wasn't really the kind of main issue. Um, the the main issue was that you you have to kind of go through a kind of um, uh, you have to fill in a form online to sort of show who you are and where you come from, and so you have to have a cover. So I was fortunate in the sense that I had a small company. Uh, who were prepared to say that I work for them. I told a white lie and I managed to get credentials to attend this show, which until I got there, I thought, well, this will be interesting. I'm not sh quite sure what it would be like. I've, I had attended a lot of food trade shows before, and um, and but this was like nothing else I, I had ever seen. I just wasn't prepared for what I, what I was going to see because it was just so sort of surreal and futuristic. Um, you know, two massive, massive exhibition centre in Frankfurt, just full of products that all seem to be, you or 
ingredients, substances, uh, concoctions, whatever you like to call them, that were used in processed foods we eat regularly, but you, no one short of, a, you know, a chemist and possibly a biotechnologist and even then a physicist might really understand how they were fully produced. And um, I just remember walking in there and just being amazed because it was just nothing that said food to me, not food in the sense that I know it. There was no whole ingredient. There was just demonstrations or, or illuminated displays of um, colored fluids and uh, strange powders and lots of bragging from the from the company selling them about what this product would do for you like it will make your bread glossier it will extend the shelf life of your product it will allow you to cut ingredient costs so it was a kind of bragging and the sort of functionality of these ingredients to the uh, customer um but absolutely no explanation of how the, the the things were made in the first place. And what I found quite interesting is that when I was wandering around, you know, looking like a customer who might be keen and interested in buying some of their ingredients, I was getting a, a really, you know, friendly sales pitch. The minute I said, thing, I said, you know, could you tell me a bit more about the production method? Because my customers are quite keen on provenance and they like to know the the methods. They said, no, we couldn't answer that. You'd have to contact our our head office and you could see the eyes glazing over and you instantly identified as someone who was A, asking them something they didn't know. I mean, they were just salesmen. They had a clue yeah. about the production methods of things. But that that really it just made me realize that the people, the customers of these ingredient manufacturers, the sort of people who are making ultra processed food, they actually haven't got a clue and do not understand in fullness um, what the ingredients are they're using. And they just take it from the, the producer that it's fine, it's not a problem, it does what it says it, it does. And as long as it's useful to them and it you know, improves their profit margins in some way, then they are very happy to buy it. And I did find that quite alarming that there was absolutely no scrutiny um, of, of what was on sale as far as I could see. And of course, all the ingredient, uh, all the, the processed food companies employ people who are called food technologists. And their job is to sort of understand these um, products. But basically, they are they are like um, sort of to them those sort of people coming from a food technology background. I mean, natural food is just a, a blank canvas, and the puzzle for them is how much could you change it, alter it, take it to pieces, put it back together in another form with different ingredients and different thises and that's e numbers, additives, processing aids, whatever. How can you put it back together again to make a sellable product? So their objectives are about what the you know the 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 the, the companies call value engineering. It's wow. making a profitable, making a very profitable product at low, you know, with a high margin, low cost. That's really their job. And there's anything like health, taste, um, it just doesn't come into it. It, it it's like asking a 
um, someone who fixes your car to talk about eat cherry orchards. It's it's just not their domain. And they, they, you know, they're actually very, very clever people. They can do all sorts of amazing things in a kind of chemical, physical, um, biological sense. But there's no sort of overall intelligence guiding it. And I suppose that's what bothers me, because that's when you then start having a situation where we're all, or many of us who choose to eat ultra-processed food are, 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 are allowing into our diet uh, a load of products and things that we really haven't a clue about. We're just taking it on trust that it's okay and kind of going with the flow. And you know you know what it isn't because um, all the research, um, you know, building up now shows that really the higher the consumption of ultra-processed food, the worse um, health is, um, in the population and yeah yeah, and that's exactly what i want to get into because that's if someone comes up to you and says joanna what's the issue with these uh, what's the issues with these chemicals being in there what's the issue of of it being ultra processed because look now i can buy food that lasts long on the shelf what do you say to those Mm -hmm. kind of people right well i would say that ultra processed food is essentially fake food so one of the first things that's wrong as i think i i said One of the main objectives of food processing is to reduce the amount of expensive ingredients and substitute something that's cheaper that can be made to have the same effect. So, for example, supposing we take something like an egg custard, you know, inside your donut or, you if you make that in the traditional way, you're using eggs, sugar, a little bit of corn flour and milk, whole milk. But if you could make that using tap water, dried milk powder, a, a, a modified starch that's been chemically altered to have a certain property using a, a whole bar, a whole sort of armory of uh, food um, technology techniques to change it. And if you could, instead of having it need to taste of eggs and milk, you could just put in a bit of flavoring. Well, you can have, you can sell something that purports to be custard and it, it really is just nothing like the real thing. So my first uh, reply to your question would be, well, you're getting cheated because the things that you think are in there, the the good things that you look in the label and think, oh, egg custard, that sounds nice. You find it's either got only egg powder or it's only got 2% egg. It's got a load of uh, modified starch, maybe some gelling agents like agar or carrageenan thrown in there so you're being conned the second thing is that we know when we're dealing with natural foods i.e whole foods as nature made them for as a whole apple uh, a steak um uh, um you know a piece of broccoli it, you know nature is a highly highly intelligent system you know she didn't design foods to shorten the lifespan of the human race these foods in their natural form are good for us and if you eat those foods you don't need to get too much in your head about am i eating a healthy diet if you mainly eat whole unprocessed foods and largely cook most of it when you can you're going to you don't have too much to worry about 
but um, none of us know what, well, we can, we do know in some, uh, there are many signs that it's very, very uh, dangerous, that when you take, aside, take apart natural foods, you submit them to a number of processes, which might be chemical, physical, thermal, um, genetic engineering, various techniques that change them, and then you reassemble them in novel forms that people have never eaten before, then it's very likely that those will be, uh, will cause problems. And, you know, we do know that. So, I mean, one of the biggest bodies of science on this, I think, is um, the science around artificial sweeteners oh yeah i'd love to yeah, well, that because um there was a there was an article i think a couple of months ago where they're talking about how spartame is linked with uh, well is can make your cells pathogenic yes well it's just like we're learning more and more one of the the obvious things about artificial sweeteners and I, I don't think anyone disputes this now is they they don't help you lose weight so the whole sales pitch is you can still have this extremely sweet taste. I mean, crazily sweet taste, but you know, there are no calories attached, so you won't put on weight. Well, there's now a body of science that shows that actually consumption of artificial sweeteners, um, you know, is, is reflected in weight gain. So, um, and then as you say, there are things coming, very specific things coming out now about how it can have other very negative effects. We know or some scientists think that one of the things about um, artificial sweeteners is that they actually are, we, you know, our body just can't handle them. Our brains can't handle them. You know, we weren't designed to have them. So what they do is they basically wrong food or confuse the hormones that regulate our appetite. So hormones, uh, ghrelin and leptin, they should be regulating and controlling our appetite. But when they get whacked with a chemical sugar, um, which is crazily sweet and, um, you know, uh, has no accompanying calories, then they just can't deal with it. So it's just, I mean, I remember once interviewing someone who was fairly candid about the, the ultra process industry. And I said to him, you know, I, the, the, I asked him a specific question. I said to him, am I, am I just being a bit paranoid here? Is it actually okay is really not as bad as I think he said no no everything you imagine but all of it and this is this is the situation now with the worms you know the can of worms that is hello hey can you hear me I can now, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the connection was unstable for a sec there. So, yeah, you were talking about um, the artificial sweetness, sorry? Uh, yeah. Uh, you were talking about your friend, or you're basically saying that... Um, you want me to start it, there? Yeah, well, you're yeah. basically saying that, you know, friend, is it that bad? And your friend said it is? Yes, it's worse. Do you want me to repeat that, or do you want me to... Yeah, if you just repeat from the friend story from there. Yeah, right. I, I was uh, once in, interviewing an industry insider and, and I said to him, I was asking questions and I said, you know, I'm sorry to bombard you with questions. Am I just being a bit paranoid here? Am, am I imagining bad things going on or things that are really not good for us? 
and um, you know, put me right. And he said, no, not at all. It's you just haven't got, you don't know that all of it, it's much worse than you thinking everything to do with um ultra processed food manufacture is a can of worms in so many different respects. And if people really knew, you know, they would be shocked, but they make a good job of uh, of um, uh, keeping it all secret. And that may really brought me up sharp. And I think I've seen that since where there starts with a whisper, a murmur from some scientists and who say, actually, hang on a minute, artificial sweeteners, they're not good for you. And they're dismissed as, oh, no, rubbish. You know, that's not true. There's no evidence for that. And then not very long after 18 months, then there'll be another bit of research and another bit of research. And gradually what you suspected at the beginning uh, is correct. So I'd say to people, um, don't don't go around in a fool's paradise thinking, I can eat food safely if lots of people buy it in the supermarket and eat it because I've got government looking after me. These big companies are responsible. They care about me and my health. Just don't believe it. Um, you know, look after your own health, make your own decisions on the basis of your critical thinking and listen to the people who are actively discussing and researching the subject. You don't need to believe everything they say, but you do need to listen to it and evaluate it for yourself. Definitely, definitely. I think having an open mind is key in these kind of situations and this kind of subject, yeah. especially critical thinking. Well, if someone says to me, can you give me a good, simple example that I can understand of what's wrong with some of the, the modern ultra food processing ingredients? I often give the example of uh, rosemary extract. Now, if you were buying a product and it might be a, a pizza or it might be, you know, a pie or a sandwich or whatever, it could be many things. And you look at the label, supposing you're one of these people who reads the ingredients label and you think, rosemary extract, oh, that doesn't sound too bad, does it? You know, rosemary is a lovely thing, you know, fragrant, rose in the garden. It just sounds peaceful. <laughs> it sounds lovely, doesn't it? And extract has got that feeling of high quality sort of production, you know, the sort of people who make essential oils would extract something from so so you feel quite sort of cool and relaxed about that but essentially rosemary extract is what is known as a clean label preservative so clean label is trying to make um highly highly um uh, uh you know techno ingredients sound nice um what it does is its role is as, as a preservative it is a uh, dark brown color it comes out of a bottle it doesn't smell of rosemary it doesn't taste of rosemary it's been extracted often using solvents so chemi harsh harsh wow. chemical solvents to get it out of a pile of probably what was to start with dried rosemary not fresh rosemary so basically using these this extremely uh brutal um solvent extraction method you get this brown liquid from rosemary which will then be useful as a preservative in processed food and what that will do is allow a longer sell by date so you know there's you know there's the person thinking oh rosemary extract lovely and they have not got a clue and who can blame them 
uh, for for knowing what, what what's been done to that product that it's not good and it's actually a sign that they're of the manufacturer trying to make the product appear fresher than it really is. Wow! And imagine consuming solvents on a daily basis in small amounts. Like I I can imagine people saying that um that oh it's not toxic because um you eat it and it's fine, but over time it's going to have a health effect isn't it well absolutely i mean the whole basis of the regulation of um food additives and um also pesticides is based on the yes we accept that there are toxins in it or could be present uh However, in the end product, they're at such a low level that we have made a calculation that that won't harm your health. And they're all studied in isolation. So, you know, they don't ever look at the cocktail effect or actually some a group of scientists have persistently tried to look at the effect of the, the cocktail effect of various additives and so on in the diet. Um, guess what? They don't get the research, um, the, wow. the grants for that. They don't get the money. So it's very, very limited. So, I mean, what we have is a situation where the potential risk is looked at in isolation. No one sat down and thought, right, OK, you have someone I mean, typical. I think most people in Britain now, have at least 50 percent of their diet is in that ultra processed food category. So really some sage government department should or advisor should have been sitting down thinking, okay, if all these trace elements of, of solvents and various processing aids and all these additives come together and this kind of oil and that kind of modified starch, what kind of effect is that going to have on the human body? You know, they won't do it, be impossible to to tell because the disaster of processed food is just lost in the population. There's no way of proving uh, conclusively that one ingredient is terrible for, for real people. But what we do know is that we, you know, we just need to use our eyes and our, our gut instinct and say, you know, if you eat a lot of that kind of food, you're not eating a healthy diet. And over time, you know, that will have consequences, serious consequences for your health. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's something I try to get that message out as much as possible. But it's interesting how the human mind works, because where uh, a lot of the population is used to eating the same, uh, a certain way, eating a certain way, living mm -hmm. a certain way. And when you introduce change, it doesn't taste as good, does it? <laughs> At the start? <laughs> no, no, I think there's... um we kind of bumble along in a kind of safety in numbers frame of mind, which is, you know, everyone else is eating this, loads of people take this, you know, uh, the, 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 the label on the packet tells us it's good for us and so on. Well, people wouldn't lie, would they? And we, we want to go along with it because, yeah, you know, who wants to be a sort of detective having to sort of analyze everything you eat all the time, you know, you, you can't do it. But one, one of the things I often find is helpful to do is to look at other countries uh, because I find that um, the Anglosphere, so I think we're talking America, UK, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, yeah. they're countries that are particularly serious problems with food and obesity. Um, and uh, really, a lot of that is to do with this snacking, ultra-processed food 
pattern kind of eating. Um, you know, if I, if I, and I'll give you an example. In Britain, it's quite common for workplaces to uh, um, time a meeting for one o'clock lunchtime. Um, and what you'll see is people on Zoom are in the office and they're eating a, a not very good sandwich or, you know, they're starving because they didn't have lunch. The whole concept of lunch has been subverted by the sort of work culture. But that's not true. If you go to places like um, Italy, France, Portugal, you don't see that on the whole. You don't see people eating food in the street, not regarded as very... Uh, I mean, it's not good. The Italian would talk about la bella figura, you know, looking good and standing eating a burger in the street is not la bella figura for any Italian person and so on. And I think that we're quite different and we tend to be inside this sort of, um, you know, Anglosphere and with a particular attitude to food. And although I think there are other, you know, ultra processed food are rife, you know, throughout the world. Uh, but we do, in you know, in this zone, have a particular sort of addiction to them. Uh, I mean, one example would be the, the the consumption in the UK of crisps. Um, you know, they're massive aisles. There's a crisp aisle. You know. Um, oh my I, gosh! Yeah, went we went I, to Tesco last night and. Um... Just go into crisp bar, right? Like, there's so many different options from different companies, different flavors, different shapes, different sizes. Baked. What else are there? They do vegetable crisp now, which was interesting. Um, but that's cooked in sunflower. So I'd love to yeah. see what you think about that. You know, when they have now, like, you know, uh, quote unquote healthier options in terms of crisp. Now you have like crisp cooked in sunflower oil, but they're vegetables yeah. based. So what do you think about that? Well, it's interesting you should ask me that because I was looking at a product, I won't name it, but I was as part of my research, which is a sort of might be represented uh, or come over as a healthy alternative to crisps for children. It's very clearly pitched at children. And I had a look at the ingredients. And I mean, basically what it is, is a pile of starch modified from potatoes. So that's highly chemically altered starch bound together with uh, oils now they specify rapeseed and sunflower but these are um highly processed oils they're known as rbd oils refined bleach deodorized so that means they've been through a really industrial refining process just as you would do for petrol or something like that so that's been mixed with powders and the powders say you know, give the names of vegetables. And that always makes people think, oh, if the word, if there's a name of a vegetable on the label, that must be healthy. But essentially the powders are just there as colorings. Um, And I had a look at the sort of the fat level um, in these uh, products. And I, I should make clear that I don't think that fat is bad for you, providing it's not um refined. If it's fat in its natural state i don't have a problem but the oil in this product there's actually more in it than a packet of crisps but i could see that a lot of really you know well-intentioned parents would probably pick this up and think oh you know this is a healthier snack 
I mean, the point being that, you know, you stroll down the, the aisles of a French or Italian supermarket, you you won't find it that easy to find crisps, to be honest. So in Britain, we're in a particularly sort of snack culture. culture. Yeah, and a snack culture. We, we with any encouragement, will skip meals, not sit down to eat, not sit down around a table. All the sort of cultural, social things about eating together um, tend to be downgraded in, in Britain, you know. And um, I, I mean, I think that one of the great things about traditional eating patterns, and by that I mean three meals a day or one major meal where everyone sits down together, whether it's, you know, in in, in um, the Middle East or in, you know, whatever country you're talking about, this sharing of food is is really important to give give us the time to sort of feel that we've eaten well. And it encourages good eating patterns because children just learn to eat what their parents are eating. There's no staggered meal times. Everyone sits down together. You know, so if you're if if um eating falafels and tahini and you know six different salads is normal for your parents, then you're gonna you're gonna end up you know eating the same things. Our problem here now is that uh, for a long time now in the UK, we've actually had three categories of food in sort of the average shopping basket. And, you know, one is the adult's food, uh, one is the children's food, and one is the, the pet food. And yeah, often yeah. the pet food is arguably healthier. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. My, 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 cats, my cats eat uh, raw chicken. And um, I, gave yeah. a, I gave a beef liver last night and she was loving it. Yeah. And I'm like, and I'm yeah. eating it as well, but my kids will not touch it. My wife will not touch it. And I get it at the beginning. If you're if you're not yeah. accustomed to that taste, it does have a you know distinguished taste to it. But for me, it's like bloody hell! Like beef liver has yeah. literally every nutrient in there that I would need. So it only makes sense. Yeah. Like my cat is all over it. Um, but yeah, that's interesting. You mentioned that there are categories in a basket. That's true. Uh, yeah, and I think it's this sort. But it, again, it's it's just not a, a good eating pattern. And I think. This sort of separating out, and it also makes us different sorts. One hundred percent, I totally agree. Different sorts of consumers, you know, the, from a marketing point of view, right? Let's target the the parents who fret about their children not eating well. Tell them it's healthy when it's not. Okay, design that product for them. Oh, you know what? Let's target the the busy young people who haven't got much, many where much to cook and don't eat on their own. Let's you know devise a lot of products for them. It's just it's just breaking us down into categories of consumers that can be marketed in a, a never ending stream of ultra processed food and divide and conquer comes to mind. A divide and conquer, yeah. And I mean, I say, you know, I hate to sort of be too too simplistic. But I think we all like some sort of candor. Essentially, the, 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 the food advice people need is um, avoid processed food, cook as much as you can, sit down to eat a meal, preferably with other people. But even if you're on your own, don't, you know, do sit down, enjoy it, don't snack and, and try to keep your eating during the day don't eat too late at night try and you know finish eating relatively early so your your metabolic your metabolism can sort of you know, coast along throughout the night without doing too much hard work and um, that is basically all you need to know uh, about food if it really comes down to it um 
And yeah, yeah, I I think this is this is the whole problem with ultra processed food is that we we don't it doesn't fit any of those bills. We don't know what's in it. We don't prepare it. Um, we eat it mindlessly. Um, those companies make a load of money out of us, and we are all getting fatter and uh, less healthy as a result. Definitely, definitely. Um, and I, I should ask you at the beginning, actually, just for the listeners out there, what is the difference between uh, a natural food, a processed food, and an ultra processed food for those that who have no idea? Yeah, well, um, I uh, interesting though, there's a great scientist, a group of scientists in Brazil, uh, led by uh, uh, a professor Carlos Monteira, and he actually designed a system. It's it's a four tier system um, regarded at which is sort of breaks down processed foods into various categories. And it, for anyone who's really interested, look up that Nova classification of food. But for me, it's pretty simple. Um, natural food is a food in its whole its form. So let's think of something like celeriac, a whole celeriac um, with green bits sprouting out the top, still in its skin. That would be a you know pro, uh, whole unprocessed food. Processed food might be, in my mind, something like yogurts or cheese. Um, so it's it has been processed. It isn't just milk. It has had cultures added uh, to make it either into cheese or yogurt, whatever. And so in that sense, it has been processed, but the processing um, can be not always with a product with like yogurt, but can be quite uh, straightforward. And it's not something that I'm unduly concerned about. People have been fermenting milk and, you know, preserving meat and so on for centuries. I'm not concerns about that kind of traditional processing and then we come to the ultra processing and that is when you basically uh, approach um, ingredients as a sort of matrix you break it down in a number of of ways chemical physical uh, thermal just uh, sheer sheer weight you crush it all sorts of things to change it and then you reassemble it, it uh, the, the the various components you've extracted in new forms that we've never eaten before. That to me is ultra processed food. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's kind of obvious that uh, if you avoid um, the extremes of ultra food processing, you can eat a, a very nice and very interesting diet. Um, you can en enjoy food, you're, you're not missing out of anything, you're just getting more good food. But those ultra processed foods really um, are not contributing anything to your well being. Exactly, exactly. And that's, uh, that's the thing that I, I talk about with my kids on my posts on Instagram, because that's where I'm mainly on. Um, yeah, uh, another thing that worries me, and I'm seeing it happening uh, before my very eyes. And um, what I've noticed is like, uh, you mentioned Sorry, oh. uh, you mentioned you mentioned categories earlier, but there seems to be categories not just in our um, trolley basket, but also categories of things like first it was like um, uh, conventional produce, uh, organic produce, and now you have now we're gonna have GMO produce, and this seems like to me what I'm seeing in my head is like these things are gonna be in section, and people people are like, well, I'm better off getting the conventional produce compared to the mm -hmm. genetically modified produce because it's better than that 
and then you know then there's people who and you know it comes and there is a cost to this kind of stuff as well there's a price difference that actually that's where they grab us isn't it yes absolutely um i mean on on organic uh, i mean i've always been a huge fan and supporter of organic food because basically who wants to eat food laced with residues of pesticides i mean it it clearly isn't a good thing um that said i i am fairly selective there are certain organic products i would never dream of having anything but organic so that would probably be things like uh carrots yeah um flower you know various things like that but i'm not going to split here so if i come across a farmer who says look i've got these great jersey cows I don't, um, you know, I don't spray pesticides or fertilizers on the grass. They're out there um, and I sell them milk. I don't happen to have organic certification because I can't afford it. Um, but, you know, do you want to taste my milk? I'm going to say, yeah, of course. So, Is yeah. that raw milk? Yeah, I am a big fan of raw milk. Actually, I am lucky that I um, live near enough to uh, a farm that produces raw milk. And that's oh, what I so lucky. That's amazing. And yeah, well, the thing about the milk is that it comes in glass bottles. You have to buy the bottle, fine. Um, and then it, it has this head of cream on it, the top of the milk, because it hasn't been homogenized. You know, homogenization is quite a, a brutal process, which sort of distributes the fat particles evenly throughout the milk. So you don't get that head of cream on the top. And then it's been also pasteurized often, uh, which is, um, again, another extreme heat treatment, which changes milk. So when I get when I get the, the, the milk that I buy, it's fabulous. You know, it's just glorious. You get this head of thick, lovely cream, the whole viscosity of, of the milk. It's rich. It's you can have a glass of that and think, I know that's doing me good. And then you see the the supermarket equivalent, which is in a plastic carton, watery because it's had the the fat removed from it. It's been homogenized. It's been pasteurized, and it's oh, just like oh, quite yeah. water. Yeah, definitely. Like, especially like my kids, like in in schools, they give little carton, uh, carton boxes of um, semi-skimmed pasteurized milk, and the teacher saying, "Oh, this is healthy. Everyone have a free milk carton." And I'm mm -hmm. like, "Kids, uh, what fat soluble vitamins are in that?" I'll get you the milk from the farm at home. Yeah. And I'm yeah. quite lucky as well. I don't have a farm near me, but there's a guy who lives pretty much 10 minutes away. He goes to the farm in Leicester and he gets loads and puts it in his like um, mm -hmm. freezer boxes in his car and he sells them right. to the local area. Yeah, that's great. There's a, there's a lot more of that now, you know, people sort of setting up their own little supply networks. And on the question of children, no, I find that children are really smart. It's actually quite hard to, I mean, in one way, it's easy to con children because they're, they're little, but often they'll just ask you a really piercing question and they'll really catch you out. So I'm a real believer in constantly explaining to children why you're doing things and why maybe everyone else's parents don't make them do that but you do it and just explaining it to them and I yeah. I think I've come out my my children are grown up and I can see that they like me uh love good food know what it is and spend time preparing it and um, their children will will learn that from them so it's it's really important not to give in there's this sort of 
I, I think he's actually a bit sort of lazy acceptance amongst a lot of parents. Well, you know, everyone's doing it. And um, what can you do? You don't want to make Yeah. And do you know what? It's, it's interesting you say that because, like, it's hard to explain that way of thinking without them being offended or being very offended and they're trying yes. to see it as an attack where it's like, yes, um, let's just start thinking about the well-being of our child. But, but, but you see... It's, this is the thing, a majority of people just want to go along with what other people do and they don't want to think of a whole lot. They want an easy life, don't they? Yeah, and I've come to, you know, even not even say an easy life, you know, because in a way that's sort of judging them. I think it's almost that they um, they just feel out of their depth, you know, and the combination of this is, is too difficult and, they, and they're and they out of their depth. They, they just don't bother. And what I notice now I mean, so I've come to the conclusion that sort of it's about 20% of the population. On any subject, on any topic, I think there are probably about 20% of the population who really are interested in critical thinking and doing their own thinking and working out their own path. Um, the other 80% are happy to go along with what they consider to be yeah. The advice of you know the food industry, the the uh, food standards agency, you know, government committees, and I I think that's probably just what we work with. But the fact is that the, the sort of act who I would see is the act of twenty percent really yeah. are interested in food, and I find now that particularly amongst younger generations, I see a lot of interest in food. And once you pointed out certain things to, to, to them, they're really prepared to take it on board. Whereas I think a lot of older people just feel a bit, well, can't be bothered, a bit cynical. You know, I've got to this stage, I'm not going to change now. So I'm I'm quite hopeful. I find, I think that recently there's been a, for some strange reason, I don't know why, because I've been talking about this and other people have for, for decades, but there is a real sort of, movement concern about ultra processed food and yes, yes there is a big one i think there's a, there's a guy who's like a scientist and he's been on tv and he's actually written a book about it i can't remember his name he's got like a dutch kind of name von something von Tulliken, chris van Tulliken. Yeah, yeah that's the one yeah and he's just released a book and there's a and um yeah i've just seen that recently i was like oh that's interesting because they're like going into it and how you know the corruption and how it all works and why have we gotten to this place in the first place Yes, exactly. So I think there is this appetite for uh, among some people, and and that's fine because at any point in time, you you know you need pe there are people just going along with the status quo, and then the ones who change it or at least decide that they are going to they want agency uh, over of what they eat, and I, I I feel that's the really important thing that I see. People who are really interested in food want more control. They want to know they want to be in charge of their health. Um, and I think uh, for them, therefore, going along with what everyone else does isn't an option. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Ever since the pandemic uh, finished or started, George Orwell's name keeps popping up. Yeah. And even when we had a chat a couple of weeks ago, um, you mentioned it as well. And in your book, you mentioned a quote from George Orwell. Orwell, he basically said that um what did he say he said something about um that a tin of food is deadlier than a machine gun and that's what he said yes 
Yes. So if you could first tell me who is George Orwell, because I'm interested in starting to read about him. I downloaded it on Amazon Kindle. There's a free uh, the Orwell 1984. I think that was his book, I think, or maybe it's someone else written it based on him. Yes. Um, they've given that for free. So I've downloaded it. and I haven't read it yet. If you could just tell me who is George Orwell. Well, yeah. I heard his name so many times. I was like, all right, OK, this guy seems to looks like he can predict the future by the sounds of it or a future yeah. that's already planned, maybe. Yes. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, you do hear people referring to George Orwell a lot. Um, and and he kind of has almost had this spooky uh, sort of ability to, to sort of predict the future. He was, of course, the English author and journalist who wrote some sort of groundbreaking books, um, which have really influenced people, uh, Animal Farm, 1984 uh but the 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 george orwell had something to say about food and in the road his book the road to wigan pier which he wrote in 1937 um he talked about um the impoverished processed food diet of the 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 um english working class and he came up with this quote which really resonated with me and he said we may find in the long run that tin food is a deadlier weapon than the machine gun. <laughs> and I, I think obviously tinned food was what passed then in the 30s as, as what we would now call ultra processed food. But I think he's right in the sense that this ultra processed food does have the capacity to kill us and to really have a wholly negative effect on the, the health of the human race. I mean, it already is, is done uh, uh it already has done um so you know yeah i mean orwell orwell really did predict a lot and it's very worthwhile reading uh orwell's books now it is it, spookily relevant and not just food just the way the world is run as well i guess that's right yeah interesting absolutely for on all for very many reasons for rereading george orwell um, the 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 another one is the, the the whole thing of the Ministry of Truth, which is all about lies. So the equivalent of that in um, in processed food would be saying something like, um, uh, "Yeah, yeah, good for you," or you know, contains one of your five a day. Oh yeah! Oh my god! Uh, low low in calories, high in protein. Yeah. I'm I'm, yeah. high, I'm I'm looking at the high in protein uh, labels. I'm looking at the back. So like, probably like three grams or something like that yes well you know it, it's it's you most people just do take things on trust and what's really interesting if you look at supposing you've got the eyesight that you can actually read a a product label carefully you know the back of a bottle or a packet um the the, the there are two the back of the packet is covered by law so by law you can't actually lie about the ingredients although you can use uh, lots of weasel words to make them sound better uh, than they otherwise would. Can you um, give me a list of weasel words? Well, weasel words, well, for example, if we come back to good old rosemary extract, I mean, that sounds lovely, doesn't it? And um, that is simply a preservative. It's what's known as a clean label preservative, i.e. it doesn't need to have an E number on the ad, on the label. So there's no um, nothing to prompt the person who's casually scanning it to think it 
is a highly processed ingredient. Another one would be mixed carotenes. I mean, mixed carotene sounds like something quite good for you because we all know that your carotene is good for your eyesight and you get it in carrots. Great. Let's let's all eat mixed carotenes. That's simply a yellow a yellow coloring. That's how it's used. Um, so, um, but on the on the back of a label, you have the ingredients listing and the nutrition label, you know, table. Um, now, the ingredients listing, we've discussed it, it is covered by law up to a certain point. The nutritional labeling is also covered by law, but very few people know how to interpret it. So it's fairly useless to most people. Yeah, yeah. Turn on to the Sorry. front of the packet and you can just more or less see whatever you want unless it's a blatant lie so you can say you know that a chewy children's sweet with some raspberry puree you know contributes to one of your five a day um you can use all sorts of buzzwords like no artificial colorings no artificial flavorings low fat to create a sort of aura of health and greenness around the product which it it absolutely doesn't earn. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like, um, especially the low, low, um, what? No artificial sweeteners and additives, but it's high in sugar. I gu- I guarantee you that much. And everyone just forgets that. Yeah, well, that's right. But there's also distraction, isn't it? It's the red herring. So we latch onto certain things, you know, and and give us confidence. And we we sort of gloss over the ones we don't understand or that aren't really answered by the label. I mean, another thing that's really shocking about processed or ultra-processed food labelling in the UK and around the world is it's really misleading, like the name of the product. So, for example, if I was to say um, this is a beef pie, a beef steak pie, steak pie, and so it will say steak pie with Guinness and, and Chantenay carrots or something like that, and you think, oh, that sounds really good. Then you turn around to look at the, the ingredients and you find that, guess what? There's only 13% steak in it. And even that is actually not steak. It just says beef. And then you've got a lot of modified starch and flavorings and fake umami type flavorings that give a savory taste. And then you've got piles of, of um, flour and carb because most of it's pastry and there's not a lot of meat. So this is this is one of the very um, a sort of misleading that's quite quite le- no one will say you know there's something wrong with you have to describe this as a a water flour pie with a lot of with a little bit of steak in it there no no regulatory bod- body is going to trouble the 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 manufacturer over that but it's just disappointing because you if you follow the picture on the box and you think yeah, I'm really busy tonight. Oh, no, I don't want to cook again. What can I get? Oh, that sounds really nice. And you look at the picture, mm, you get home and then you take this awful thing out the box and you look at it and think, this just doesn't look like it's It's more like a budget airline ready meal. It's, oh, it it yeah. just doesn't appeal. And I saw that. So it's a, it is a terrible disappointment, I think, Um you know, particularly all the ready meals and the things you just sort of pop in the microwave. And I, I think it's it's low on highly nutritious ingredients. And that's one of the reasons why you often find that people sit down to eat what seems to be a, a fairly healthy um, ready meal or something. But then, you know, half an hour later, they're thinking, ah, oh, you know, I just want something sweet now. I really... Oh, you know, I wonder what 
what else could I could I oh maybe I'll just have that or yeah. a camp or something. And I think that's that that sort of constantly um eating but never quite satisfied is another uh, example of the sort of British sort of malaise around food that we the food we're eating and we're relying on ultra processed food it's just not that satisfying so when you sit down I mean I'll guarantee that if I invited you around I said right Omar I'm going to just cook you it's a straightforward Sunday lunch so we're having lamb potatoes we're having a bit three or four vegetables we're going to have nice gravy made with rosemary and so on and you had that you would really feel satisfied you walk out and think oh, I don't need to think about food you know for hours now but if I give you a sort of ready-made, you know, ready meal roast dinner in a box and said, here you are, Omar, you know, eat it there while I'm doing something else. You know, you it just wouldn't satisfy. You'd be hungry. Yeah, definitely, because it's it's nutritionally dead. There's hardly any nutrients in there. That's right. It's processed in such a way where your body doesn't realize it. And most likely it's probably take, it's an anti-nutrient as well. Your body's trying to get all the nutrients that you already have, trying to recover whatever it can from what you're eating. Uh, interesting enough, I had this conversation with uh, Dale Pinnock, the medicinal chef in episode 14. Yeah. We spoke about exactly the same thing. We just said like, stick to whole foods. These are foods that your body knows and wants. And mm -hmm. once you get into a role of eating those kind of foods, you'll feel fuller because that's what your body wants. It doesn't want all this Frankenstein foods that he has no idea what to do with it. That's absolutely right. And I think more and more, in, uh, there's an interesting strand of research or more of a strand of field of research now, which is into satiety, satiating the appetite. And it's very, it's, it's, it's clear that, that macronutrients, protein, fat, really do satiate your appetite. And uh, they keep, you know, what my grandmother used to call, they'll keep you going for longer. You know, so you always have something, when I was small, you always something that will keep you going, properly keep you going. Um, carbohydrates don't generally, and including fruit and vegetables, which are carbohydrates, don't have that same effect. And ultra-processed food, which has been denuded of, you know, the, the, it, it's healthy um, macronutrients and all the associated micronutrients that are naturally present in whole foods just doesn't satisfy us and the brain you know the brain I think we're animals we're programmed to you know look after ourselves and to seek out nutritious foods so we have difficulty dealing with that food there is interesting there's a farmer um, in in Wales who who did a very funny experiment one day and what he did he has all these puppy dogs farm dogs and so he gives them um he, uh sort of fake meat you know fake ultra i think i think i know who you're talking about he's on instagram well. but yeah Garrett. he got like a, a million subscribers or something recently so yeah i think it's him yeah, yeah. Well, so, so he can he gives the dogs he puts down real meat and then he puts down the the stuff that's made to look like meat. And of course, the dogs take one stuff, one sniff of the fake stuff, and they go right for the 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 the, the meat. And he's done the same thing with, you know, whole milk and plant so called plant milk. The uh, <laughs> dogs just don't want kittens don't want anything to do with it because the little brains already telling them, hey, this isn't good for you. This stuff is the good stuff. Um, and I think another interesting sort of we did see and I think it's kind of peak now but I think we've kind of gone through peak vegan and peak plant-based because um what what we're beginning to realize is that the most nutritious foods 
are essentially livestock or from animals, animal source foods. And that if you eliminate them from your diet or even cut them down to a large degree, you your body is going to struggle to get that same nutrition. And it doesn't matter if you have a group of sort of um, food technologists who are sort of putting together a whole lot of clever dick ingredients that they've made uh, by unknown methods. They cannot simulate and trick your body into believing that this is as nutritious as real food. Yeah, just like um, powdered uh, milk for babies. Like I saw a documentary on Channel 4 and they're basically saying like, there's no way they can mimic mother's breast milk. There's no way. They tried, but they can't do it. Um, it's interesting you mentioned about um, livestock because um, I have a, a lot of female clients and the um, common issue of female clients is iron, iron issues. So well, how much red meat do you eat? And they go hardly any. So, and I was like, well, yes. that's probably the easiest source of iron you could have instantly. And there's a thing about, oh, it doesn't, I don't like the taste. But I was like, just have a little bit. Just then you won't have to spend all this money on supplements. You're getting a real food. Your body will appreciate it. You, you know, your mind will be more clear and all the rest of it. So um, it's interesting that you mentioned about livestock. That is, um, it's such a big thing, eating real food. Um, what top three tips would you give for people who want to stay away from ultra processed foods? My three tips are just avoid anything that looks ultra processed. And ultra processed is anything that you don't understand what it is exactly, what the ingredients are in it. Uh, just don't buy that stuff. Um, I would say cooking. Cooking is just that's, that's an amazing important. answer. Cooking is has seems like the thing because we're in such a fast paced world every day by day actually um cooking has kind of been a forgotten issue and people are just going for the frozen oven chips uh the frozen foods are stick it in the oven and that's dinner ready yeah so i mean i think the thing about about cooking is that people who cook from real ingredients tend to understand do understand because they're tasting it what real food is and they get to enjoy it so when you get a pile of ultra processed pap you actually just don't want to eat it. It doesn't. It doesn't hit the spot. And and for people, I understand a hundred percent. Understand people who say, "I'm really short of time. You know, I just don't know how to cook, and it's easier for me." But but what I've what I would say to them is, look, you know, none of us really want to have to brush our teeth twice a day, and uh, but we do it, don't we? Because we know <laughs> if we don't. You know, we're going to have black crumbly teeth and we're going to spend a fortune at the dentist. And we don't want to do that. So, you know, cooking or at least being even if you can't cook, you know, buy good quality ingredients, just buy good ham from the butcher, or a good bit of cheese, a decent bit of butter, a few cherry tomato or tomatoes. Some, you know, that is better than putting yourself in the hands of the 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 ultra processed food industry who do not have your your um health at heart. And I think my the third tip I would say with people is I don't think it's a good idea to to get too cerebral about food, you know, to get too sort of neurotic about it. Now and I like to think that for all that I'm someone who um you know has thought intensely, deeply researched very technical aspects of food. I've never lost that love of food and eating and pleasure. And I don't, on the whole, believe in good ingredient, bad, good, bad, certain macronutrients are good, certain ones are bad. I think just follow the sort of traditional eating patterns 
of wherever you are, you know, and they tend to be healthy. And, you know, the reason that, you know, they've they've endured over millennia is because they've kept people alive and healthy. So try and connect with the sort of cultural eating habits in your zone or country or your area. Get get in touch again with natural production, you know, when the seasons are, eat seasonally and never, ever lose that, that joy of food. And, and just think of ultra processed food as a gang of very untrustworthy, profit driven companies who are trying to rob you of the pleasure of eating real pleasure as opposed to fake and contrived pleasure and um then i think you 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 you're not going to fall for the sales pitch of the ultra processed food industry that's amazing that's amazing so i've got a quick bonus fire round so it's going to be quick questions i want your first answer that comes to mind is that right yeah sure i'm not good at these but (laughs) all right i'll be quick as possible uh chicken or beef beef kale or broccoli broccoli celebrity crush elizabeth david what's the best age uh 39 what are you gonna have for dinner tonight tonight i'm going to have a lasagna that my husband has made and he makes his own pasta and very good wonderful slowly cooked ragu uh, made with um, sofrito vegetables in the traditional sort of Italian way. So I'm going to be having that. I'm going to be having a nice glass of um, uh, Nebbiolo wine and um, uh, possibly a green salad. And, and that will be it for, for dessert, probably some clementines. Mm, nice, nice. Um, texting or talking? Talking. Uh, superpower of choice? If I could have a superpower. Yeah, superpower of choice. I mean, what could I do if I could? Um, could be flying, could be running really fast. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, superpower would be to have a craft like making leaded glass or gilding or um, you know, shaping leather, something. Yeah, making something out of nothing. Yeah, making something out of nothing and having the the skill and know how to do to do that. I I really appreciate people who have artisan skills. So you know, in Italy, the people who who kind of keep the cheesies uh, and turn them lovingly so that they get just exactly the right kind of maturation and mold. Those those people who keep those craft skills going. Um, uh, yeah, that I'd love to be like that. Brilliant. Guilty pleasure. Guilty pleasure. Um. I don't really have one. I mean, I am. I can eat quite a lot of um, good dark chocolate, mm. but then I never. I just don't enjoy anything that's less than seventy percent. And I quite often that my standard chocolate would be about eighty, eighty-five. So I can. I can. You know, at the end of the day, when I'm relaxing, I think, oh, a couple of squares of dark chocolate would be quite nice, but. But that's really it. And other than that, I'm not guilty about any of my pleasures. I mean, I I love a ripe peach. Um, I absolutely adore, you know, the first asparagus. I, you know, um, the crackling on on roast pork. Um, all those things are to me very legitimate pleasures. 
Um, on my deathbed, I've sometimes thought that I do have a bit of a weakness for a really good croissant if it's only made with butter. And um, I there's a very good patissier near, near where I live. He's French and he makes excellent croissants. And uh, I have to say, I do have to restrict my my uh, co- consumption there. But the main thing about the croissants is those crunchy little spiky ends. So as yeah. I die, I'd really like someone to be uh, feeding me all the ends cut off a load of freshly made croissants. I think I would die happily. That's an interesting question, actually. I might ask for future guests, like, what would your dying wish be as a meal? <laughs> so uh, thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> um, best place you have ever visited to date? Oh, I've been so lucky to, uh, in as part of my career, I've uh, been to so many places. I've been to the Windward Islands in the Caribbean to see uh, bananas being grown, fair trade bananas. I've been to Darjeeling to see tea being, being picked and produced. Um, and, and then I've just done a lot of traveling. Italy is always a sort of wonderful country to go because go to because Italians really, really understand food. But I think that if I had to pick one, and the place that I find endlessly fascinating would never tire of is Istanbul in Turkey. Um, I once went to Istanbul with all the family. We took Christmas to Istanbul. We we just dropped Christmas and we decided to go. And we ate out uh, in all the fabulous restaurants from the, the very simple little places on, on the Bosphorus that are sell, sell, you know, that give you a macro sandwich to quite complex food. Um uh, in in Kadikoi, we we went to a restaurant called Chia. I think you pronounce it, or maybe Shia. And uh, the 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 man who owns that um, specializes in uh, keeping all the the old traditional Turkish dishes in production. We had things like squid. Uh, sorry, not squid. We had quins stuffed with um, lamb baked. We had beautiful. Wow. With almonds and chicken cooked in a clay pot. Um, so for me, uh, Istanbul is probably if I have to go to one, that's where it's going to be. Interesting, yeah, because we're looking to book Turkey for next summer. So um, I love. I've been in Istanbul. I loved it. It's the first time I've been to uh, first time I've been to Turkey, and I absolutely loved yeah. it. loved the um, the bazaars as well, and like yeah, haggling, yeah. haggling with the uh, first time I ever haggled, and I was like, wow, this is actually fun, and they're uh, willing to yeah. my uh, uh, haggle with me as well. So um, that was quite interesting. Okay, great, great. And what advice would you give to your younger self? Um, what advice would I give to my yeah to the advice I would give to my younger self is is don't be a time waster. At the moment, you think life's boring and you can't be bothered doing things and you're kind of apathetic. But you know what? Don't waste it because you'll look back and think, my goodness, why did I why did I not put in a bit more then? So I think in some ways, um, my parents, although strangely, they were both teachers, were quite laid back. And in a way, they actually should have said, hey, you know what? Buckle down and work harder and you'll be glad of it. Um, you also realize as you get older, just how much you learn when you're young. Your mind is so open. You remember things. You really take things on board. Um, and you don't have that same ability to just soak up information as you get older. So don't waste time. Do absolutely everything you can. Um, don't listen to someone who, to any negative person. Spend your time around people who kind of exude a kind of positive energy, who have a good, who make you feel good, and um, take it from there.
That's brilliant. That's a brilliant answer. And uh, that 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 advice to your younger self can apply to anyone. And that's why I love it. Um, what does health mean to you to finish off? Health means to me control of my life, more control of my life. So all of us in our lives, we don't, we, we can't control that. We we don't have enough money. We can't can really can control that. We can't actually control where we live or who we're responsible for, what we have to do. But a certain extent, taking control of what you eat and your food and health really just, just gives you a, a feeling of agency in your life. And I think that's very, very um empowering brilliant that's brilliant um and if it's okay because before we finish um i wanted to ask about your experience in gaza because um when i called you last uh, and i saw a tweet that you did and um i I think it'd be quite interesting to hear your your experience when you actually went there because obviously there's so much going on right now right i should be clear that i didn't get to Gaza. I got to the occupied West Bank. So I was in Palestine. I keep being able to travel in Palestine and that was the, but in the um, West Bank. So that's the Israeli occupied West Bank, illegally occupied uh, Palestine. Um, the thing about Palestine is that if you know your Bible, you remember uh, the, 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 a place that was called Canaan. Uh, the land of Canaan, the land of milk and honey. And actually, Palestine is the original land of milk and honey. It's been there since biblical times. And Palestinian farmers are amazing because they just produce the most stunning, high-quality products in the most awful circumstances where they're constantly living under the jackboot of the Israeli occupation. So I, they produce fantastic olive oil, wonderful extra virgin olive oil. They produce um, za'atar. You know, anyone who uses Middle Eastern food will know that deliciously fragrant sort of sesame salt and 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 sort of marjoram dried spread, uh, you know, kind of powder that you put on top of breads and salads and things. Beautiful olives, beautiful nuts. Um, I was lucky to go to Nablus, Nablus, uh, where I had the best um, knefi of my of my life, which was just this is a Middle Eastern sweet made with sort of cheese and sticky uh, pastry, stunning. Uh, the breads, the the markets, the vegetable fruit and vegetable output there is amazing. But what saddened me so much was to see the. The, the 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 what is as uh, Palestinian farmers had to put up with, for example, that during the night the Israeli settlers. So these are these are people who have set up illegal settlements uh, in Palestine in Palestinian territory. Will just cut down olive trees, cut down a family's ancient olive trees. Um, this this sort of destruction. Uh, doing everything to I- impede um, uh, Palestinians in general, but farmers just going about their their, their lives at uh, a real apartheid system where you know if you're a Palestinian, you cannot travel on the same road as the Jewish settlers. Um, of course, the massive and monstrous separation wall that's been constructed. 
between Israel and the West Bank. Um, all the checkpoints that mean that if you had, say, uh, an olive, um, you have olives to press and you have to go to the local mill that's three miles, but you might have to drive 15 miles because the checkpoints will make you go in that direction. There's so much um, uh, challenge for Palestinian farmers, but they really are a fabulously resilient bunch of, of people, as are the Palestinians um, in general. I, I just take my hat off to them. Wow. Wow. And I think on your tweet, you mentioned that you were in a car, UN car, and then they were like yeah. banging yeah. against a car. Yes, I was I was traveling um, uh, in the course of researching all the, the food produced in Palestine. I uh, was traveling in a car with Palestinian number plates. So there, there uh, was me, um, some colleagues from uh, a British uh, NGO, non-governmental organization, a Palestinian driver. And we had to slow down to come to a roadblock or a checkpoint, uh, which is staffed by fairly young Israeli soldiers with guns, uh, maybe big guns. I, I'm not an expert in guns, but I can tell you they were terrifying submachine guns, I would say. I'm not an expert, but I was scared. Uh, but as we were slowed down there, they, 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 this group of palette, uh, of uh, Israeli settlers. So settlers are people who illegally have occupied um, Palestinian land, arrived at the side of the road and they, they started banging on the car window, sort of shrieking abuse, howling at us, um, spitting. Uh, I, I looked at these people and I, I and I've actually, it was the one time in my life where I, I, I thought, you know, this could turn into a really bad situation. You are actually at some personal risk there, here. I, I've never experienced that before. And it just made me feel such sympathy and empathy for the for the Palestinians who have to put up with this abuse every day in their own land. Um, and the constant encroachment uh, and brutal occupation that's... And obviously... In the last two months, it's gone up, you know, several gears, even in the West Bank, where there is no Hamas presence. That we're, we're hearing all sorts of attacks on uh, Palestinians by either Israeli settlers or the Israeli Defense Force. So, um, yeah, you know, um, I I just feel and I hope, you know, an olive is a is a, a like a dove. It's a, it's an olive branch is a sign of peace, and I feel that the Palestinians, because of their great resilience, I mean, they've been there for thousands of years, that they will, their the spirit of the Palestinian people will 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 never uh, will never die. Joanna, thank you so much for your time. Um, we've gone a bit mm -hmm. over, but um, you know, I really appreciate this. And as I said, like you know, you're one the first people I looked up to uh, many, many mm -hmm. moons ago. And um, I'm truly honoured that uh, we're having this. We've had this conversation. I'm truly honoured also that you followed me back on Twitter. So, I what made you for me follow you back? I was just, I was curious about that when you first did it. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't know. I I I like to learn. I think uh, you and I have got this in common that 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 at least that we like when we see an interesting idea or something, we like to know more about it. Yeah. 
So I thought, here's someone who's saying something really interesting. Uh-huh. And, and maybe maybe you had liked some of the things that I had said. And I, I often look and think, that's an interesting person. I'd like to hear more from them. So so that would be it, Omar. Wow. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Right. Mm-hmm. You enjoy your evening. And uh, once everything's ready, I'll um, post it up on my Twitter and all the rest of it. And I'm sure you'll right. see. Brilliant. Great. Thank you so much, Joanna. Take care. Yeah, bye, Omar. Nice to speak to you. Nice to speak to you. Bye. Bye.